This is Emmanuel Today, taking steps toward God's possible in your life. It's now time for you to sit back and prepare for insights on your walk with Christ. Let's join today's message right now. How's everybody doing today? Thank you for joining us. Thank you for those joining us online. Can we just give a big shout to everyone joining church online today? Thank you for being with us. Hey, I was wondering, would it be okay with you all if I started out today's message with a joke? Would that be okay? All right, all right. I feel like I got enough yeses for permission, so thank you to the people who are with me today. Yes. Uh, I was reading yesterday online, and one of my friends posted on Facebook, and he's a minister, and he said, I'm not only privileged to preach on biblical kindness this weekend, I also had the opportunity to live it out. As I was leaving the grocery store, there was an older man lifting all the groceries into the back of his vehicle, and as I pushed my cart past, I yelled, lift with your legs, and really felt good about myself. (laughs) Thank you. Scripture teaches us laughter is good for our soul. It's okay to smile in church. Uh, Today, I want to talk to you for a little bit about being unified as the body of Christ and, and living a life of unity together as a church. And in life, there's a lot of things where people are divided and where there's rivalries. And it gets as simple as to things like, hey, Coke versus Pepsi. How many Coke people in the room? All right, how many Pepsi people in the room? (laughs) Then you have things that get in a little more serious, and then there's Republicans and Democrats. Just kidding, I'm not going to do it. Everyone was like, I'm about to find out. Uh, Then there's Mac and PC can be a thing for people. There's football rivalries like the Vikings and the Packers, and it's college football season, and I'm hoping the Big Ten plays at some point this year, and I know in the Big Ten you have Michigan fans, and then you have people that cheer for that team in Ohio. And then you get into, you know, rivalries with siblings. I grew up with two older brothers, and there was times where we had a little bit of a rivalry between the brothers and different things. And my brother, who's directly older than me, he's four years older than me, named Peter, normally attends Emmanuel, but he's not here today, so I get to talk about him and say whatever I want. Older brothers, be nice to your younger brothers. You never know when it's going to be their turn to pay it back. So, two stories. One of them's embarrassing, and one of them's good. And I'm just going to share the embarrassing one, and I'm going to give you all of the details so you know just how bad it was for me. When I was 12 years old, my brother was 16. We used to go to church. My mom drug us to church all the time. And we were at a Sunday evening church service, and our pastor had this brilliant idea to do an illustration and to use my brother and I as part of his illustration. And he said, okay, boys, what I want you to do is, Peter and Ben, I want you to line up on this side of the altar area of the sanctuary, and when I say go, I want you to sprint as fast as you can across the whole front of the sanctuary. And I didn't, grow, I didn't grow up where it was okay to run in church. That was like, normally you're in trouble if you ran in church. And so I was like, Pastor, thank you for permission. Let's do this. Now, mind you, I was 12. My brother was 16. He was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. He had all the things that I didn't have quite yet in life. And I'm only saying that to give as many excuses as I can for what happened next. So we start out. Pastor says go. We take off. And I'm sprinting for my life. Like, my mom's watching. All my friends are watching. And my brother just crushes me to the other side of the sanctuary. It's humiliating. And then the pastor said, now, in this passage of scripture, the person we're going to be talking about was actually carrying water. And so, Peter, what I want you to do is carry two five-gallon jugs of water, and we're going to run the race back. And I was like, here we go. We ran the race back. My brother still won, carrying the jugs of water. And I was sitting there like, 
oh no, not only could I not beat my brother in a foot race while he's carrying an extra like 60 pounds on him, I ruined the pastor's illustration. And so I don't know what he preached about the rest of the day. I was just sitting there like this. Um, But I can tell you the place I was when I beat my brother in basketball for the first time. And listen, my brother wasn't the kind that was like, hey, we're going to play to 7 or 11 like a normal person would. He's like, we're playing to 55, and if you don't give it your best, like, it's going to be bad. So I remember 16 years old playing basketball at a half-court spot here locally and just finally won. I could walk you back that day how good that felt to the place we were, to the time of day it was, what color the trees were. It was one of those images in life that's frozen into your mind forever, beating your older brother. So all that to say, hey, younger siblings, there's hope for you someday, okay? You can do it. Hang in there. You got a shot. But there's these sibling rivalries that can be fun, and then there's the kind of things that actually divide And there's a pair of brothers that grew up in the early 1900s, Addy and Rudy Dassler, that started a shoe company together. They called it the Dassler Brothers Shoe Company. And what happened was is that during one of the wars, there was a miscommunication between the two brothers, and it caused a rift between them to the point where their brotherhood, their friendship was so bad that during the war, they would try to report on the other brother to have them put in prison camps. When the war ended, they split their company. Addy Dassler formed the company Adidas, and his brother Rudy formed this company called Ruda, later changed it to Puma, who all of you might be familiar with today. And they had their shoe manufacturing plants in the same city, on different parts of the city. And it was so divided between the brothers that there was businesses you would go to, and they wouldn't serve you if you had the wrong set of shoes on. They couldn't date or marry people that worked for the other business to the point where they said that people in this town had crooked necks because before they look at your face, they look at your shoes to see what you were wearing to see how they would treat you. And it was that way until 2009 after the brothers were, had died and were buried on opposite ends of a cemetery that in 2009 finally the two companies came together and pray, played a game of soccer a friendly match of soccer. Can you imagine a divide getting that big that it caused that big of a rift for so many people? And how many of you know when you have a division with somebody, it rarely ends with just the two of you, other people get brought into it? And I'm talking about that today and bring that up because we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in the book of Ephesians where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and in the surrounding areas that's going through a lot of things that are potentially divisive. And the Apostle Paul's writing this letter not from like great circumstances. He's actually in jail and he's chained to a Roman officer and he's dictating this letter to a scribe who's writing it down to send to the churches. And the church in Ephesus is made up of two primary groups of people. You have Jewish believers and then you have believers who who are Gentiles who didn't grow up as Jews who came from a different tradition. And there was a rivalry or a division between them that was religious Gentiles didn't grow up knowing the God of Israel. It was cultural. Jews had rituals, feasts, ceremonies that distinguished them from other nations. And it was racial. The Jews could boast of having the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the patriarchs in the Old Testament, their blood running through their veins. And it was political because both groups came from different political ideologies. And so the Apostle Paul is recognizing this, that these people have all come together under the banner of the name of Jesus, but now they're all living together as a church, and they still feel some division. Now, I don't know if anybody in this room feels like in the church today there's anything similar 
that maybe we're all here under the name of Jesus, but we came from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial or ethnic backgrounds, or, or, or different political ideologies. But I can tell you this, that I feel like this word that Apostle Paul spoke to the church in Ephesus applies to us today. And he starts off by trying to elevate their thinking out of all of the stuff that they're caught up in. And he says in Ephesians 2, verse 20, about the, this body of believers, he says, listen, together we are his house, referring to God. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. We're carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. The apostle Peter in a letter also wrote something similar in 2 Peter 2.4 said, you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are now his holy priest. And so what the author's trying to do is get the believers to understand that, look, you're not just an individual that belongs to the group you came from. You're one building block in the temple of God, in the house of God. And each one of us together form the beautiful body of Christ. And that's only possible through the work that Jesus did. Earlier on in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So I want you all to understand that Jesus has already done the work of breaking down any divide between any group of believers. He's already done the work. But I feel like there's a temptation for us today that instead of living in the unity and the ability to live in a peaceful, harmonious future together as a church, that we have this temptation when we start paying attention to the world around us, the different ideologies around us, that instead of living together in harmony, we start building back the wall of hostility. And today I want to talk to you about how we can live together in unity instead of doing that. And the goal is this. The goal is described in Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. It says, we'll no longer be like immature children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We'll not be influenced when people try to, try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love, growing in every way more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy, growing, and full of love. So today I'm going to talk about a few ways that we can live together in unity. And the first one is unity in our words. And when I say unity in our words, I'm going to let you in on a secret. I'm not just talking about the words we say face-to-face when we're with each other. I'm also talking about the words we use when we're typing behind a keyboard on the Internet, okay? So just keep that in the back of your head as we talk about this. Um, Ephesians 4.29 is a popular scripture at Emmanuel. Pastor Nate will often ask, what time is it? And we'll all respond, it's 429. And that means that 429 from the scripture is that it's always a good time to be encouraging other believers. And 429 of Ephesians says this, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. When we read this, we might not always know what the word foul is talking about, Uh, What it basically is meaning, it comes from the word unwholesome, which derives from something that's rotten or putrefied. It's corrupted and no longer fit for use. And the word image you get when you look into this word is that it's like, imagine for yourself rotten fruit or rotten fish. Now, I know you all are good people, 
and that there's no day of the week that you would walk up to somebody in the church or in the body of Christ and hand them a rotten fish and be like, here you go, take that. I know you're not that kind of people. And I know you wouldn't go up to someone with rotten fruit and be like, here, it's really good, and give it to them. But sometimes with our words, that's the exact thing that the Bible is warning us not to do because we can get tempted to do that with our words. The, the second part of that verse tells us to let everything you say be good and helpful. Let your words be an encouragement. Other translations use the language of building others up. And the building others up language comes from this root word of edifying, that we're supposed to edify other believers. And to understand the word edify, you have to understand its origin is edifice. And fun fact for you, I didn't know what the word edifice meant until I was in my 20s. I was in a Spanish-speaking country, and they're talking using the word edificio. And I said, hey, what's an edificio? And they're like, it's an edifice. And I'm like, what's an edifice? And like, an edifice is a building. And I was like, ah, it all clicked for me. Uh, so, gracias, hermanos, y todos mis amigos hispanos dicen amen. Um, thank you for the help. I learned the word edifice, and what the scripture is actually saying is with our words, we are building the house that other people live in. And so, if we use rotten materials and rotten words, corrupted materials, we get to say what we want to say, get it off our chest, and then we walk away, leaving that person to live in that house we just built for them. Because you and I both know that when hurtful words are said to us or about us, we don't just get to walk away from it. It sits in our soul and it hurts and there's damage done. And as believers, the scripture is warning us, don't do that. Rather, build others up so that the house they live in is secure, it's solid, and it's foundation. And when the storms of life come and attack it, your brothers and sisters are going to be okay because you built them up and encouraged them. And you can think about that in your home with your kids or with your parents, with your brothers or sisters, with your coworkers, to make sure that you're using words that encourage and build them up because they live their life with the words that you speak to and about them. It's important that we use words that are full of grace. And when we speak words of encouragement, it gives grace to the person who hears it. The Christian life should be one that's full of encouragement of others. And if you feel like your spiritual gift is cynicism or criticism, I hate to tell you that there's no warmth or encouragement in those things, and people will be slow to follow a cynical, critical person. I want to be a part of a church that has each other's back with the words that we say. I want to be a part of a church that we can trust that when we're together or when we're apart, the words we're saying about each other are wholesome words, they're good words, they're edifying words, they're encouraging words. I want to be part of a church that when you go online later in the day and people are talking about things in the world, they're not just talking about all the negative, all the bad, all the stuff, but they're using their words to encourage and edify and build up and point people towards Christ, not to the problems of the world. Everyone can see the problems of the world, and the answer hasn't changed in over 2,000 years. The answer is still Jesus, so let's use our words to point people towards Jesus instead of pointing them to all the problems that they can see. Augustine, one of the church fathers, it said of him that he had a sign that hung in his uh, dining room hall. And the sign said this, whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. Imagine if we lived our lives in such a way that when someone came up to us and spoke bad about somebody else, we just went like this and said, hey, that's not welcome at this table. Hey, you might want to go and sort that out with them. 
Because what happens when two people are in a, in a divide is it's really simple because I don't just leave the divide right here. What you end up doing is you go and gather allies to your cause and they gather allies and then all of a sudden something that was just between two people that could have been resolved feels like a war, right? How many of you know that division, again, doesn't just stay between the two people? So the, part, the first part of it is to use your words not to speak evil or say something that would embarrass them if they heard it or if you knew it was said about you that you'd be embarrassed or shameful, but to use your words to be encouragement to other believers. Second thing is that we should have unity in our prayers. I love the way the Apostle Paul prayed because sometimes when we pray, we're tempted to pray things, you know, like, God, I just pray that they, they come along and see my point of view. God, I'm so right. If they could just see how right I am, the world would be a better place. Move them over here, Lord. God, I pray that, they, you know what, God, if everyone just voted like me, this world would be a better place. God, if people had the same ideas as me, the same ideologies as me, and then we pray things like that. But I want you to catch how the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 1. He said, ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. Let me just ask you, when's the last time you stopped and thanked God for your brothers and sisters in the faith? When's the last time you just paused and said, God, thank you that you've adopted me into your family. God, you know what, thank you that I have a pastor that cares about me. God, thank you for my pastor. God, thank you for my friends at church. God, thank you for the people I sit by at church that even though they might be different than me, they have my best interests in mind. God, thank you for the work you're doing in them. And give thanks to God for your brothers and sisters. Whew. Not stop thanking God. And he says, I pray constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he's given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I pray also that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him, the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. I know that's a chunk of scripture that I just read, but I did it intentionally because I want you to see a model of how we can pray for each other. That instead of praying that somebody align their view with our view, that somebody align their preference with our preference, that all of those things, instead we should be praying that our brothers and sisters in Christ have a revelation of Jesus. We should pray that they have wisdom and insight. We should pray that they grow in their knowledge of God. We could pray that their hearts would be flooded with light, that they would understand God's confident hope understanding the greatness of God and his power for each and every one of us. Because don't you believe, church, that if we prayed prayers like that, that our brothers and sisters could grab hold of everything that God had for them, they'd live out their best life? I believe that. And so I want us to pray instead that people would have a revelation of a certain topic or idea or issue. I want to pray that they have a revelation of the risen Jesus in their life, that their life could be more like him. Let's pray for a strengthening of the souls of our brothers and sisters. Let's pray that their hearts would overflow with joy. Let's pray that they'd have deeper faith so that we can all be stronger in the mission God's put in front of us. The next thing is unity in our actions. Once you know your actions matter, in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, I love this, these two verses from Jesus. And a lot of times when we look at Jesus today, we look at like a super chill Jesus who's just cool with stuff. Uh, but I want you to know that Jesus uh, gave commands, and he gave a command right here in the scripture. And he said this. He said, so now I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love each other. 
Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Isn't it interesting that of all the things Jesus could have commanded, the one thing he chose to do is something we should have just been doing anyway. And he said, I give you this command, love one another. Love each other. Love each other with your words. Love each other with your words when you're present. Love each other with your words online. Love each other with your actions. And then the second verse there, verse 35, is so important. He said, by this, the world will know that you're my disciples. So often we get caught up in thinking that, you know what, people are going to know that I'm a disciple of, of Jesus because, uh, because of my church attendance. People are going to know I'm a disciple of Jesus because I pray before my meals. People are going to know I'm a disciple of Jesus because I give in the offering. People are going to know I'm a disciple of Jesus because I said the prayer, I did the thing, and, and I'm good, right? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're missing it. People will know you're my disciples, that you follow me by the love that you show one another. And unfortunately, there's been a period of time in church history where people thought, if I just say the prayer and I believe the right thing, I can still treat people around me poorly and call it good. And I want to tell you that that's not good with Jesus. Jesus says, the way you treat each other, the world will know from that if you're my follower or not. If you take anything home with you today, take that home, think on it for the rest of the night, pray about it, say, God, help me treat people better because I want them to know I'm with you. And your actions can actually help lead others to the Jesus that you've met. Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul encourages us to grow in every way more like Christ. Not so that everybody around you would grow more like you. He said, I pray that they grow more like Christ. The Apostle Paul, who had this incredible life, he didn't even say, God, help them grow more like me. He said, no, help them grow more like Jesus. And friends, let me tell you, if you're praying for everybody in your circles to be more like you, there's an idol in your life called you. We need to pray that people become more like Jesus and pray that we also become more like Jesus. And Jesus is the head of his body, the church, and he makes it all fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work that helps other parts grow so that the whole body's healthy and growing in love. Listen, the Apostle Paul took it from going like, hey, God's putting us all together. We're building blocks of the church. Each one of us is a living stone put together to form the church. Now he's saying, hey, you're part of the same body. And all of a sudden it's more personal. Because just like the Jews and the Gentile in that day, they could imagine being in the same church together, but being in the same family is a whole other thing. And I want to encourage us today that we are all now together in the same family. And... We are all in the same family as people who God has made new, making a new church body together in a new temple. And I love the language of the temple that he used too, that you're forming God's temple because the Jewish believers had an understanding of what the temple was in the Old Testament and the new believers understood what the temple was in their city. They had a huge temple in Ephesus to one of the local gods and the apostle Paul saying, yeah, yeah, I know what you've understood before, but now you're part of a new and better temple. And I want us to believe and understand as a church that we've all come from different places, different backgrounds, things where we would be divided, but now because of Jesus, we're all unified together and we all follow his direction. We don't follow the direction of a news station or a website on the internet or a social media place. We follow the direction of Jesus and we're going a new and better direction with him, amen? Amen. Now there's dangers when we come together as a body. There's dangers in the church. There's hotel Christianity. Like, hey, what's hotel Christianity? Well, some of y'all like hotels, and you like them because you can go check in, they take care of all your stuff, and then you check out, and if the service is good, you leave them a tip. 
But I want you to approach Christianity different than that. And rather than attending like it's a hotel, I want you in your Christian identity to see yourself as part of the body of Christ, as a part of God's household. Being a part of a household is different than paying for a room at a hotel. When we're in part of the household, we have responsibilities to each other and to the whole. There's also what I like to call ninja Christianity. And you're like, hey, what's up, ninja Christianity, what's that? Ninja Christianity is when we're so stealthy, we just slip in and out the back door before anyone sees us. And instead of being a ninja Christian, I'd encourage you to be a family member. And a family member is somebody who stops and pauses and has conversations, who sits around the table and enjoys the relationship with brothers and sisters. The last one in the danger zone is the individualism. And I get that this is part of our American culture is to be a little bit individualistic. To be separate from the church is to say, I want to be a stone apart from the building. We're all living stones put together in the building, the house of God. To want to be apart from the church is to say, I want to be a stone apart from the building. What's the danger in that? The danger is this. Ain't nobody coming to just move the building with their bare two hands, but anybody can pick up a stone and throw it and misuse it and cast it in any direction. And when we're apart from the body, we run the risk of being able to be led in different directions apart from what God has as his best for us. Last thing on this is that remember, we all finish the race together as a body. When a runner runs, their whole body finishes the race. Their whole body does. And as the body of believers, we run a spiritual race so that we can all enter into the security of heaven together. And if you think about the imagery of a track and field competition in a track, if all the body parts said, now nah, I got this on my own, the only thing that they would accomplish is they'd be flopping around the track on their own individual parts. Yeah, feet and hands doing their own thing, and they won't be going anywhere. But when the body comes together, put together, set on course, the race is finished and accomplished together. So some practical things that we can do are this. We can love one another as Christ has loved us. Galatians 6.2 says we can carry each other's burdens. What that looks like is coming alongside of someone who's in need, putting your arm around them and walking life together with them. Now in the COVID era, it means just coming around next to somebody and walking life with them. Just think about it. Um, you know, do the arm. It's COVID. Six feet. There you go. All right. We can teach each other and admonish each other. We can give financially to advance the gospel of Jesus. We can come together corporately and stir up the gifts that God has put inside of each one of us. Listen, there's no unity or growth if Jesus is not the cornerstone. And I'm going to, full disclosure here, I'm going to say something that's going to shock some of you. I want you to look around the room real quick. Look around your house. Think about your family members, brothers, sisters, coworkers. We will never all agree on if Coke or Pepsi is better. And if we can't agree on that simple thing when Coke is clearly better, <laughs> we're not going to be able to agree on which sports team is better. And if we're not going to be able to agree on that, we're probably not going to agree on heavier issues like politics or social issues. But we can all agree about Jesus. We can all agree that I would be in a big mess if it had not been for Jesus and me. We can all agree that the world is in crisis and needs saving and the only answer isn't politics and the only answer isn't an ideology, it's not a socioeconomic background, the only answer is Jesus. 
And we can gather together as a church, unified, together, showing the way for a world that's full of strife and division. If you want division, just walk out the doors. You can see it anywhere you go. But if you want something different, come to church. And I want us to be that church that's together, that's unified in mission with Jesus. Ephesians 4 paints a picture for us this way. And I want to just read this slowly so it sinks in. Therefore, I as a prisoner for serving the Lord beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you've been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make allowance for each other's faults. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. Binding yourselves together with peace. For there's one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and living through all. Let's live a life worthy of our calling, church. All of this sounds super inspirational and super aspirational. But we can't do it without Jesus. If we try it without Jesus, we'll work ourselves to death. We'll try to do it all on our own and we'll exhaust ourselves. We need Jesus. Why Jesus? Let me tell you why. Jesus wasn't born into a world of perfection. Jesus was perfect but he was born into a world of strife. When Jesus was born shortly after his birth, his parents had to carry him away to a different country for refuge. Jesus then went back to his home and lived a life as a Jew in a government, as a Jew that, whose Jewish people was subjugated by the Roman government. It wasn't the perfect political atmosphere for Jesus. There's the vision about who to follow, there was different teachings, God in his eternal wisdom saw the plight of humanity in front of him. And Jesus, the perfect son of God, lived a life on this earth and he took the mess that we had made and he carried it to the cross. He laid down his life for us and he buried our sin, our mistakes, our mess into the ground. And on the third day in the grave, he rose again to new life so that we could have new life, an abundant life, a full life, a life full of hope from our heavenly father and a secure eternity. You see, God went to great lengths to give you and me a new identity, a new heart, and a fresh start. God can take the hardest heart and let it beat again. He can call the most distant person and bring them home. He can say to someone who feels like an outcast, I call you my friend. And he's done all the work for us. He deals with our stuff. I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment today. I know that today under the sound of my voice, there's people that you've been in church for what seems like your whole life. I wanna encourage you to remember that Jesus has already done the work. He's tore down the wall of hostility between us and other believers. Let's not build it back up. Maybe that's become hard for you lately and I just, in the next time that we have together, I want you to just open your heart up to God and say, God, come in, search me, find me. God, if there's anything I'm pleasing you, let's deal with that today. God, make my heart beat fresh again, new again. 
And then I know under the sound of my voice, there's people that you've never had a relationship with Jesus. You've never looked to him. You've never said, Jesus, I need you in my life. You've never experienced the forgiveness of a God who loves you. you have, you've never experienced the acceptance of your heavenly father. You've been trying to go your own way and it's exhausting. I wanna tell you today that God has something new for you. God has a fresh start. He has forgiveness for the wrongs and he has a life that's full of abundance for you. Now I wanna ask you if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never had a relationship with him, but today, hearing my voice, you're saying, Pastor, I wanna say yes to Jesus. I know I need him in my life. I need his peace, I need his hope, I need a new future. I just want you to put your hand up across the room right now. If you're online with us, you can put your hand up wherever you're sitting, you can put it in the comments. Just right now, just put your hand up in the room if you need Jesus in your heart and in your life. Let's wait a moment, there's hands going up all around the room. I'm gonna ask everyone to pray along with me and the, the words I'm praying, they're not magic words, they're just words that if you say from your heart, it's kind of a model of prayer to help lead you into relationship with your heavenly father. Pray with me. Dear heavenly father, thank you that I can call you father. I ask you to forgive me for every wrong that I've done and I ask you to give me a fresh start. I surrender my life to you and I put my hope in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's just celebrate with people that made that decision. And then today, if you did that for the very first time, I'd love it if you just take your phone out with me and if you text the word Emmanuel to 313131, our team will send you some resources this afternoon. We won't spam message you or sell your information or anything like that. We just wanna get you some information about how you can walk this journey with Jesus. Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Today. To learn more about the many ministry opportunities we have throughout the week, be sure to check out emmanuelcc.org.